Good morning. I'm Scott Bashur. I'm a pastor at Community Bible Church in Anaheim, and I teach Old Testament classes and Bible classes at the Master's Seminary and some at the Master's University online. And it is my pleasure today to take us through Psalm 1. I've entitled the seminar, The Fruitful Path, Right Thinking in Psalm 1. Now, before we uh, begin with the reading of that text and then get into our study, I want to say a couple things. One is that uh, this is not a sermon. Uh, it is a kind of a Bible study, sort of a background study in some ways, and maybe some of what I share will be useful in the putting together of a, uh, of a sermon, but uh, this is a little bit of a different sort of study uh, of the passage and, and uh, poking around it and then also thinking through some of its implications. Uh, another announcement about the seminar is that there is a handout for this, uh, and it's a, a single sheet that can be printed double-sided. And if you'll you'll print that double-sided, and then you can fold it, and uh, that way you can follow along uh, on a, in a written form there. Uh, most of what is in that handout, actually some more than what's in the handout, is going to be on our screen as well. All right, well, let's uh, take a look at the passage together. Let's read it. Psalm number one uh, is this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. As I'm sure you know, this is a famous passage. Many of you were perhaps reciting it um, from memory uh, in your favorite uh, uh, version. I'd like to share with you this quote from Thomas Watson in his book, Spirit, The Saint's Spiritual Delight from the 1600s. As the book of Canticles is called the Song of Songs by a Hebraism, it being the most excellent, so this psalm may not unfitly be entitled the Psalm of Psalms, for it contains in it the very pithy and quintessence of Christianity. What Jerome saith on St. Paul's epistles, the same may I say of this psalm. It is short as to the composure, but full of length and strength as to the matter. This psalm carries blessedness in the frontispiece. It begins where we all hope to end, it may well be called a Christian's guide, for it discovers the quicksands where the wicked sink down in perdition and the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. Some really beautiful words there about this psalm. It has long been heralded as a, a beautiful introduction to the rest of the Psalter. It is an unusual psalm, though, particularly when you compare it to other poems that are in the book of Psalms. It is uh, an instructional poem, for one thing, uh, it is akin to the book of things that you'd find in the book of Proverbs. In fact, the, these six verses sound like they could have just popped out of Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. Um, 
It is a, a Torah psalm, which is a, a way of describing this sort of wisdom instructional psalm. Uh, notice that the word Torah is used in verse 2. In his, um, But in the law of the Lord is his delight. That is, uh, the Torah of the Lord is his delight. And he meditates in that Torah day and night. We'll say a little bit more about Torah now. The word Torah means so much more than law. Now, law is a fine translation in many instances, and it's not a bad translation in this spot, but it means more than law. It, it really means that the, the, basic, the basic meaning of this term is instruction. Instruction, and that instruction can take the form of laws, but it can also take the form of even stories. And so it's uh, not a, really an odd thing at all that the books of Moses are referred to as the law of Moses, even though the first 50 chapters of the law is the telling of stories. Uh, there's much instruction that comes from those recountings of what God had done in the creation and in the flood and in the life of the patriarchs like Abraham and his sons and grandsons. Uh, so the instruction of the Lord is something that's bigger than just the Ten Commandments or the many other hundreds of commandments that flow out of those Ten Commandments. The instruction of the Lord is a much larger thing than uh, just what we think of as law. So this is an instructive psalm. It's somewhat like Psalm 19 is a psalm of instruction, a psalm of wisdom. Psalm 119 is perhaps the most famous of them all. Um, it's not a rare thing within the Psalms, but it is somewhat unusual. Most of the Psalms are given to prayer or to praise, uh, and there's but not a word of prayer or praise within this entire poem. Another thing about this uh, Psalm that's interesting is that it is technically anonymous. Now, we often think of the Psalms as the work of David, but his name is only attached to 75 of them, and the New Testament would affirm his authorship of some others, like Psalm 2, but uh, Psalm 1 is one of those psalms that's called an orphaned psalm. It has no heading. Uh, there are 25 psalms that don't have any authorship ascribed to them. And here the very first one is. That's actually unusual in the opening of the book of Psalms. The first book of Psalms uh, within the Psalms, Psalms numbers 1 to 42, are almost all by David. But here's this first one that is not. It is interesting that there is a parallel in some of the poetic lines of Psalm 1 with one of the poetic prayers of Jeremiah, or poetic statements of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 through 8. Now, you remember Jeremiah is a prophet in the 500s B.C. Uh, so we're looking at a period of 450 years after David. Uh, look at this text with me in Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Now that is not exactly the same as Psalm 1, particularly verses 1 to 3, but it is tremendously similar. And many Bible interpreters have wondered whether the psalmist, whoever it is that wrote Psalm 1, is not echoing the words of the famous prophet Jeremiah. In fact, there's even a theory that Jeremiah himself is the author of Psalm 1. It's impossible to, to prove any of those things. 
but I would say it is a possibility that Psalm 1 is written rather late within the history of the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalms has such a unique period of composition. It's unlike any other part of the Bible. It was composed over a period of a thousand years. Psalm 90 uh, is written by Moses, and we know that there are psalms that were written after the exile, after the Babylonian captivity. So that that gives you a span of 1,000 years. There's no other portion of Scripture that is written over such a period. And uh, it, it it seems that is as if Psalm 1 has um, been uh, deliberately placed where it is at the beginning of the book to introduce all of the other poems. And we'll say a little bit about that, a little more about that in a moment. So uh, let's get on to that now, the original intentions. What was the author of Psalm 1 intending to do? What were his goals? Now, of course, the Spirit of God has his own goals, but uh, the biblical author is going to share all of those or most of those. There is a literary function that this has. It introduces the rest of the Psalms. It gears up the reader, it gears up the worshiper to be thinking of what sort of person they need to be to enjoy the blessing of God. Within the Psalms, there will be cries and prayers for help, for deliverance. There'll be um, expressions of joy and celebration. But these need to come from lips, from a life of one who is bent towards the Lord and is committed to him. Uh, And with that sort of orientation, you are going to get the most out of the Psalms that you can. There's also a canonical function uh, to Psalm 1. That is, Psalm 1 helps the Old Testament reader to connect what he's reading in the Psalms with the Torah. Now, the the first book that was inspired of the Spirit was the Torah. I I know it's common to say in some circles that Job was uh, the first book written. I I actually think that Job is written later, although the events that it describes come um, uh, before the days of Moses. Uh, But Moses is the first great prophet and the first great prophet to write. He writes this mammoth book. Uh, the law of Moses, which we have divided up into five parts because it was so big. Uh, <clears throat> Moses is, in a sense, the ultimate prophet of the Old Testament. But God was not done speaking. And so when the uh, the book of Joshua uh, is written, uh, one of the things that it does early on is make a point that what is what follows is, in fact, an outgrowth of the work of God. It is a continuation of the work of Torah, not something intended to replace it. Uh, I'm thinking of Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, another very famous portion where uh, Joshua is instructed, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Now, the wording there in verse 8 is uh, shares some similarities with Psalm 1. There's the reference to the law of the Lord, the Torah. There's reference to meditating day and night. It's the same word for meditate. There's the reference to having good success, which is the same term used in Psalm 1, verse 3. And whatever it does, it is successful. And whatever it does, it prospers. Uh, so, 
Joshua 1 is making a point to connect the work of Joshua and the writing of the book of Joshua back to the Torah to say that this is an outgrowth of what God has revealed before. Likewise, Psalm 1 is doing that with the Psalms uh, and I think all of the other writings and connecting them back to the Torah. The, in the Jewish tradition, the Old Testament is divided up into three parts. There's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, the prophets are more than just Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the 12 minor prophets. It also includes the books, firstly, of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. These were called the former prophets, that is, the prophets who came first in the collection of the books. They gave a inspired, prophetic understanding of Israel's history. So you have the former prophets and then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mentioned the others there, so at the very beginning of that, there's this little hinge there in Joshua that connects it back to Torah. Likewise, the writings, which begin with the Psalms and then go on to include Proverbs and Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Proverbs and Job and uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, so forth. The first book there is the Psalms. And at the beginning of that is a hinge that unites it back to the rest of Scripture. It's one of the reasons I think that uh, Psalm 1 was probably placed and the number one spot early on in our very late in Old Testament history, near the end of that 1,000 year period of uh, composition. It, it is interesting that there are a number of Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament that don't number Psalm 1. They, they just have the, that poem sitting there at the beginning of the Psalms without a number. And what we call Psalm 2 they sometimes call Psalm 1. Um, and that reinforcing the idea that this poem was intended, understood to be an introduction to the rest. All right. So there's a literary function to introduce the rest of the Psalms. There's a canonical connection tying it to the rest of the Old Testament. Of course, there's a practical intention. It was to instruct Israelites in Torah keeping uh, in the best possible sense, not to keep the law as a means of salvation, but as an outgrowth of a godly life, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And that is perhaps the, the number one application that we take away from ourselves as um, when we read this psalm, that we want to be that blessed person who uh, walks in the ways of the Lord and meditates in his law day and night. Now, there's one other intention that I, I think is intended, and that is a theological intention. It, psalm 1 sets a typecast for the Messiah. Um, now, in one sense, any one of us can, can fit into Psalm 1 and, and be the blessed person who knows, who is happy um, as we meditate on what the Lord has revealed and know his, uh, his blessing and his favor. And yet there's also a sense in which um, the Messiah is the one who perfectly fulfills those words. He is the only one who would absolutely, completely only walk in the ways of the Lord and never walk in the ways of the wicked. He fills full the wording of Psalm 1. It's also fascinating that uh, Psalm 1 is placed right next to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 uh, is almost universally recognized as a messianic psalm, a psalm which to one degree or another foresees uh, the coming Messiah, the victorious Messiah, who will establish his kingdom over all. So not only does Psalm 1 uh, is that perfectly embodied in Messiah, 
but placed next to Psalm 2, there's some sense in which the uh, th- there's a longing created for someone who would fill this uh, description. It is interesting that Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Uh, Blessed is the man who doesn't do walk this way. Uh, and Psalm 2 ends with a blessing. How blessed are all who trust in him. Psalm 1 outlines what perfect conformity to God's word looks like, while Psalm 2 outlines what the complete conquest of God's kingdom will look like. And I've only listed out here two connections between Psalms 1 and 2, but really we could go on for a long time. There's probably about eight or nine uh, connections that could be drawn. I think this is one of the intentions uh, if not of the writer of Psalm 1, at least of the the compiler, uh, the compilers of the Psalms who put them in the order in which we have them now. Let's talk about some of the themes that we find within uh, this beautiful poem. There's the theme of the two ways. You see it at the very beginning. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And there at the end of the psalm, uh, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two different ways, two different paths of life. Uh, There's also talk about the multiplicity of wickedness. It's striking how verse 1 multiplies terms to describe uh, the the unrighteous. They're, They're called the wicked. They're called sinners. They're called scoffers, all within the first verse. And two of those three descriptions are going to be used again uh, when we come down to uh, verse 5, where it'll say, uh, Therefore, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the seat of the, or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This multiplication of terms suggests something about the multiplicity of wickedness, that uh, there's no shortage of it, or a shortage of people who walk in these different ways. Um, and there's some applications that we'll draw from that later on. Also note that in the Hebrew text, the words for wicked are always in the plural here in Psalm 1. So it starts off with a singular. Blessed is the man, singular, who does not walk in the counsel of wicked ones, plural, nor stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. And again down in verse 5, it will say, Therefore, the wicked ones shall not stand in the judgment. So, and verse 6 as well, uh, the way of the wicked ones will perish. Whereas at the beginning of the psalm, we have the righteous man. Uh, uh, Blessed is the man. And verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates that he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Uh, So for the first half of the psalm, it's as if the righteous man is all on his own. Um, And there's a sense of uh, being outnumbered. But it doesn't stay that way. At the end of the psalm, uh, the righteous are now in the plural. Um, when it says that the sinner shall not, uh, <clears throat> will not be there in the congregation of the righteous ones. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous ones. Uh, and there's some application there we'll draw out later about this switch from the singular to the plural. Also about the multiplicity of wickedness, notice the variety of postures that you see in verse 1. You have the wicked who are walking in their counsel. They stand along and there in the path. They sit uh, around and scoff. Um, <clears throat> this implies a variety of evil, uh, different shapes it takes on, different settings in which it expresses itself. 
Uh, I used to think that Psalm 1 uh, presented a progression of wickedness from bad to worse. And it's not impossible that it's doing that. But I, the more I've taught through the Hebrew text, the less inclined I am to see it. And, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the Hebrew text of verse 1 uh, is not perfectly synonymous in terms of the, 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 uh, the, the syntax and the grammar. Uh, in fact, there's a prevalence, a prominence that's given to the first statement about the wicked. Well, it, the text says, blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, and, the, and the word order there is normal, uh, it's typical. Uh, and then the, the Hebrew scribes put a major break in the text right there. And then the next two clauses are in sort of an inverted order from what you would expect. It, it, it then goes on to say, and in the path of sinners he does not stand, and in the seat of scoffers he does not sit. Uh, the word order is not the same. Um, it implies that the first statement is the major one, and the other two are just giving some other variety of uh, shapes and manifestations of what that wickedness might take. If you think about it, there's really not any difference between uh, those who are overtly given over to wickedness and those who are sinners and those who are scoffers. They're, they're really all synonymous. Uh, there might be a slight kind of progression, but I don't think it's the main point there, verse 1. There's more. The point, I think, is more about the multiplicity of wickedness. There's also the theme, a beautiful theme in verse 3 of the garden of the soul. Um, you know, when the Bible begins, when the Torah begins, uh, man and wife are in this beautiful garden that's cultivated and cared by God, and they're there to care for it as well. And, of course, paradise is lost because of sin, because of wickedness. Uh, but here in the beginning of the Psalms is perhaps a little nod to the life of the garden. Uh, no, paradise has not been restored yet. But for the one who walks in the ways of the Lord, there is something of a garden life of the soul that is restored. Uh, he's like this tree that is uh, planted, literally like a tree which is transplanted by alongside the irrigation ditches. Uh, sometimes we have a image in our minds of... Uh, uh, of a raging river. A lot of the devotional art that I see from Psalm 1 has some raging river, and next to it is a mighty oak that is soaking up all that water. And of course, that's not the image at all here. This is the image of an orchard. Uh, the, the streams are often, in some texts, that be translated, passages translated as uh, irrigation ditches, man-made canals, man-made streams. I, I put there on the screen an uh, image from ancient Assyria, where they've, someone has etched into the stone an image of their orchards. You can see how they've cut through these canals. And look at all those fruit trees, date trees, palm trees. They're planted right, right there. This is a garden. It's an orchard. Uh, and Psalm 1 is describing and celebrating the, the garden of the soul uh, that is being cultivated by the Lord. It has been transplanted there. In fact, that term can mean transplanted. He is like a tree transplanted by the irrigation ditches. And because it's in that pristine place, its fruit is uh, productive, its leaf is healthy, and whatever the tree needs to do, it, it, it does it well. This is a beautiful and powerful theme in Psalm 1. Uh, here's some other pictures of uh, irrigation work from the ancient Near East. Here are irrigation workers in Egypt who are Notice these trees that have been planted right by that, and the water is being drawn up. This is a 
photograph of some ancient irrigation work from from Mesopotamia where they forked off the stream to go into different places into the fields. And this is a in the Sinai today in modern Israel. Uh, uh, well, I suppose this would be Egypt now, uh, where the fields have been irrigated. This is more like the image that the psalmist has in mind than an oak along a raging river. Well, another major theme in Psalm 1 is that of judgment. Judgment and blessing to come. I think that there is an eschatological element to Psalm 1, particularly in verse 5. The reference to the judgment, the reference to the congregation of the righteous, I, I don't think is referring to things within the life of ancient Israel. That is, the courts of judgment or the solemn assemblies with the nation gathered. But that there's something glorious and final and future about that that is being envisioned. We'll say a little more about that in a little bit. Let's talk about the structure of Psalm 1. There are a number of features to consider. Generally, the outlines that you'll find in the commentaries are one and the same, but there are some, uh, a few different ones, and that's because there are a number of different features. There are recurring contrasts that run through the psalm. Verse 1 contrasts with verse 2. Uh, the wicked have their own counsel. They, have their, uh, they stand in the path. They're sitting around scoffing. But instead of that, the righteous man, he meditates on the, the Torah of Yahweh. In verses 3 and 4, there's a contrast. The righteous man is like this transplanted tree in this orchard, and it's so fruitful uh, and beautiful, whereas the wicked are like chaff, uh, the, the husks of grains that are just blown away. They're rootless and fruitless and useless. Verse 5 has within it contrast, all, all within itself, that uh, the wicked will not stand in judgment. That is, they'll have no legal standing in judgment, as opposed implied, there are others who will. Uh, the righteous will be congregated together, but the wicked will not have a place amongst them. Verse 6 has a very clear uh, contrast with it. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's even that but statement right in the middle of it. So this is very much a contrasting poem. There are also similarities and asymmetries. Uh, uh, one thing I like about some of the psalms is that some of them are so symmetrical. It's, it's easy to see when you've gone from one movement to the next. And Psalm 1 is fairly easy to see. You're in one movement and now you're in another. But those two movements, though, they are similar. They are not perfectly symmetrical. Um, one of the similarities is the use of the negatives. Uh, there are negatives found uh, throughout it. Like in verse 1, there are three negatives. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked ones. He does not stand in the path of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Verses 4 and 5 has three negatives, although one of them is implied. Verse 4, therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The, the Hebrew text doesn't have a nor, an explicit word for nor, but it's definitely implied. And uh, uh, verse 4, that was verse 5 I was quoting. Verse 4, uh, not, not so uh, the wicked, not so for the wicked, they're like chaff, which the wind blows away. So uh, there are three negatives about the blessed man and three negatives about the wicked. Uh, so that's one of the similarities that we find within Psalm 1. Uh, 
another similarity are related terms and images. Uh, you have the wicked and the righteous are repeated over and over at the beginning and the end. The, the concepts of counsel and instruction, you see that right at the beginning. Uh, he does not walk in the counsel, and that counsel is then contrasted with the Torah of Yahweh, the instruction of the Lord uh, in verse 2. Uh, now, I want to say something about the word meditate in verse 2. Um, uh, in his law, he meditates day and night. Ever since I was a kid, I would hear preachers use the image of a cow uh, chewing the cud as an illustration of meditation. And actually, that's a fine illustration. You know, a cow will chew on some grass, and then she'll go lay down in the field, and later on she's not been chewing anything and not been eating anything, and all of a sudden up comes the cud, and she chews on it some more. That's a fine illustration, but you need to know that the Hebrew word meditate does not mean to chew the cud. Uh, I think what's happened is uh, people have confused an illustration with the meaning of a word. The, the word meditate doesn't mean to chew the cud. It's actually a word that means to mutter, uh, to repeat to oneself. So if there's a cow involved, it would be the cow sort of lowing to itself. <laughs> uh, the idea is uh, rehearsing to yourself uh, what has been said, um, saying it again and again, trying to grasp its meaning and its relevance and its richness. That's the notion of meditate. And, and that, by the way, is the reason why back in Joshua 1, verse 8, which is a parallel passage to this, that's why the text says there, um, this book of the law, this book of Torah, shall not depart out of your mouth. We sort of expect it to say something like, shall not depart out of your mind or not depart out of your heart, but it's shall not depart out of your mouth. But in it you shall meditate, you shall mutter it day and night, saying it to yourself, as it were, over and over. So this is a little side point, but I think a important one, a rich one, about the theme of counsel and instruction. It, it's so vitally important we know where our instruction is coming from, that it be coming from that which the Lord has revealed. Another uh, set of related terms is walking and standing. You see the walking and standing in verse 1, walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the path of sinners. And then a different word for standing is used then down in verse 5. The, the, Therefore, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment. Literally, they shall not arise. Now, that, that doesn't mean that they're not going to stand before God to give an account, but it's used, I think, in a more of a legal sense, they will not have standing. They will not have the ability to defend themselves. Uh, down they will be. Um, also, the notion of walking is, is implied in the final verse of the psalm. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That is, the righteous are walking along a pathway, and uh, uh, the, the, the wicked are on a path that empties in destruction. Another set of related terms is sitting and congregating. The, the scoffers are seen in verse 1 sitting around mocking the things of God, mocking perhaps even the righteous man. But in verse 5, we find that there is a congregation of the righteous. They're maybe not seated, but they are gathered together 
there for the purpose of uh, enjoying the Lord and uh, being blessed by him. Tree and chaff are contrasting images, though they are related by means of contrast. Um, we don't do a lot of farm work anymore. Here's a picture of a threshing floor in Israel. There's some grain that's been set there. That all needs to be separated, the wheat from the chaff. Uh, this is a, an ancient custom of here you see Egyptians who are uh, winnowing their grain, lifting it up and letting the wind blow away the chaff. Uh, and here is an image from Africa today of someone doing that, that very thing. It is a striking image that um, uh, the wicked, though they might seem to prosper, uh, in the end will be blown away. There, there is no substance uh, to that sort of life. All right, some other comments about the structure. Uh, we've been talking about similarities and asymmetry. So we, we've got um, not only these related words, terms, and pictures, but we have in this poem two similar halves, but they are asymmetrical. That is, they're not perfectly parallel uh, to each other. And, and that is not an imperfection in the composing of this poem. It's, it's actually just part of its artistry. So the two halves of the poem would be verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 5. That leaves us with one uh, spare verse well, I'll talk about in a moment. But these two halves, verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 5, you can see that they're asymmetrical even in terms of length. Verses 1 to 3 is much longer. Now both of these have negative descriptions of the righteous and the wicked. The righteous man doesn't do 1, 2, 3. And the wicked will not do 1, 2, 3. Uh, but um, the description of the righteous man is much more developed. In fact, it's interesting that there's, you know, they're, they're both likened to things from agriculture. They're both likened to a tree or to chaff. Uh, they're both described in, their, in terms of their, uh, the, the pathways that they're on or the counsel and the instruction they have. But it's interesting that there's nothing said about the wicked's relationship to the Torah of God. There's nothing said about his relationship to the word, except perhaps implied the judgment that they'll be judged uh, by that word. Uh, verse 6 is the leftover verse. It is a concluding contrast. Uh, some psalms begin with a verse of introduction, and then the movements begin after that. And this is a psalm where the movements start off and it ends with a verse of conclusion. And this concluding verse is written in something of a cryptic way. Um, both lines employ what we call ellipsis. That is, there's a, a, an element of thought that is intentionally left out to force you as the reader to meditate a little more closely and to discern what is exactly is being said. And uh, uh, here's, the, here's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, it says in verse 6, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, that's, a, that's a, a curious statement. He knows the way that the righteous are on. What does that mean? Surely that means more than God knows the way that it's going to go. Surely it means more than God uh, could give you directions. 
there's something more intimate about it. it it's, it's not only the way that he knows. He knows the righteous who are on that way. His knowledge of that pathway, his knowledge of the people on that pathway suggests his love, his intimate care, his, uh, his concern, maybe even his presence. Those things are implied, not explicitly stated. Likewise, the last line is a little bit cryptic. But the way of the wicked will perish. Uh, the way will perish. We expected to say that the, the wicked will perish on the way in which they are. And I think that is a, a, an idea that is implied by that statement. But it doesn't quite say it that way, does it? The, the way, the way itself will perish. Now, certainly it means more than just the road stops. Uh, that the road is destroyed, it, it implies that those who are on it come into judgment. Uh, but the, the way it's stated, it is artistic and uh, uh, an elliptical, and it forces us to stop and do what verse 2 describes, to meditate on this instruction and to get out of it all that's intended. Well, uh, I'm going to come back at the end here and talk about these points of contemporary relevance, but um, I want to move on to the, what is on the last page of your handout, and that is a visual outline chart for Psalm 1. I like to create these for passages that I teach through. It's sort of a visual way of walking through the text. And up at the top of that chart is a purpose statement. It says that Psalm 1 introduces the Psalter by contrasting the character and outcomes of the godly man and evildoers, encouraging the worshiper to pursue a life of loyalty and blessing in Yahweh's instruction. This is a, the type of psalm. It is a wisdom psalm by who we don't know, written when we don't know. Uh, all we know is that it serves as an introduction to the Psalter and perhaps is intentionally conjoined with Psalm 2 to in, give it an, an enhanced extra value as uh, creating a little bit of messianic expectation for the one who would perfectly fulfill the ideals that are in this poem. Well, you can see that there are three major columns that break up the psalm. Verses 1 to 3, the first one is the first movement, describes the blessed character of the godly man. And that begins in verse 1 and 2 are coupled together uh, where the godly man's character is detailed. Uh, the, the psalm opens with, blessed is the man, uh, although it's, it's interesting in the Hebrew text, the, um, the Hebrew is blessednesses of the man. It's actually a, a noun, blessednesses, happinesses of the man, which is a, a way of saying, oh, how blessed the man is, uh, who is, then does these things. And, and what he does in verse one is he refuses to conform to wicked counsel. This following, going down this path that uh, uh, has been contrived by fallen, wicked minds, whether that be idolatry, which was uh, such a pervasive sin and wickedness throughout the ancient world, uh, whether it be alternate approaches to, to ethics or morality, he refuses to go down that road and will not congregate with those people. And it doesn't mean that he never has any interaction with them. You know, we as Christian people are called to be people of mission and to engage with the world round about us, but not to be influenced by them in sinful ways. 
So his godly character is revealed in his refusal to conform to wicked counsel and also in his daily devotion to Yahweh's Torah. Uh, he is taking pains to make sure that he is receiving counsel from the Lord. Verse 3 moves on to talk about more of this blessed character. The, the godly man's blessing is likened to a fruitful tree, a tree that is cultivated by Yahweh. I mentioned before that the word planted in some contexts means to be transplanted by the, the streams or the irrigation ditches, the canals, and this orchard of the Lord's tending. And the result is this fruitfulness in life. It, does, it produces everything that you expect it to and when you expect it to. Uh, because it's being so well cared for um, by uh, spending time in the Word of God. Now, verses 4 and 5, what a contrast, as here the degraded condition of wicked persons are discussed. Now, the wicked were introduced in verse 1, and we're told that they had a way of doing things, a way of leading their life, but we had little glimpse of what that resulted in. So, here in verse 4, uh, it's sort of in reverse order from uh, the first half. Now that the image is used first, verse 4 hinges right off of verse 3, where here the fate of wicked persons is likened to useless chaff. Um, you can't do anything with chaff. It's not good. You can't even use it for fire. You just need to blow it away. Verse 5 speaks about the exclusion of wicked persons in the age to come. There will be no legal standing in God's final judgment. There will be no permanent presence with God's people. Uh, so just as verse 6, I think, is speaking about final judgment, so also verse 5 does as well. It's interesting that the standing and the uh, pathway of the righteous is described in this life, whereas the wicked, the more focuses on what's going to happen in the life to come. The psalm ends, verse 6, with this concluding counsel about the two paths. Yahweh is present with his people on the path of righteousness that they're following in. And judgment uh, is final, is the final destiny of those who are on the wicked path. It is a sobering word, but an important word uh, for our young people, for really for all people. And we know it is what path we are on. Now, before we uh, conclude, I want to speak about some contemporary relevance of this psalm. And, and really, uh, I wish there was a lot more time to go over this, but uh, some contemporary relevance. Well, first would be to meditate on all God's instruction. We mentioned at the beginning of the poem, uh, of our study, that the Torah, the Torah of Yahweh, is not just the laws, but really all that God has given instruction in. And as the scripture would continue to unfold, God would give more and more instruction. And while we should uh, cherish the Old Testament and even the law of Moses, there's much to learn from it. Uh, God's instruction doesn't stop there. In fact, uh, we have come to know the Lord in, after the fullness of revelation has been revealed in Jesus Christ. God has instructed us how we might know him and know of a certainty that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. So it's meditating in all of God's word, uh, mindful of how it's reached its climax in Jesus Christ, uh, <clears throat> that we'll, we will find our souls nourished. Uh, another point of application would be not for us to be surprised by the variety and the volume of error. In verse 1, error was everywhere. The wicked have a well-tended pathway they're leading people on. They 
uh, wicked were standing around trying to get other people to join them. They're sitting around scoffing, making fun of it. And, you know, we see that all over the place today. Uh, The more our culture becomes post-Christian, the further it goes down that path, the louder and the the more pronounced you're going to see the opposition. Uh, Letter C, cultivate the garden of your soul. Spend time um, meditating in God's word, growing internally. You, You might feel like you're in a jungle or you might feel like you're in a desert round about you. But as you spend time meditating on what God has revealed in his word and in his son, Jesus Christ, there is a garden life of the soul that you can enjoy. And the, the blessednesses, the happinesses of the man described there will be yours. And then lastly, remember in the end that you are not outnumbered. I know many times it feels like that wicked are everywhere and it's hard to find righteous people. One of the reasons we love coming to convention is that we get to be around those who know the Lord and love his word. That's one of the reasons we ought to be vitally involved in our churches as well. We need to remember that we are in the end not alone, that there is a great congregation of people that the Lord is bringing to himself, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, And uh, in the end, it is that congregation of the Lord's people who will endure, who will enter into the everlasting blessedness that he's prepared through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm hopeful that this time of uh, study and reflection on Psalm 1 1 has been useful for you, and I look forward to our time of interaction. Uh, Before we uh, conclude, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we ask you to seal to our hearts all the good things of your word, all the things that we've read this day, and may we be not only hearers of it, but doers of it, uh, may your spirit enable us to do do it all and to, to uh, produce fruit to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in that precious name. Amen. Thank you so much for being part of the seminar.